So, John chapter 5. And this is the word of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. (coughs) Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Let's pray and seek God's wisdom as we read and study his word this morning. That he would truly transform our lives uh, by his word and indeed his power. Let's pray together. Father God, we do indeed thank you for even what we have sung and heard from your word so far this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful, that it is trustworthy, Lord, that we can build our lives upon it, for it indeed is truth. And so, Lord, as we read your word today, Lord, I pray that we would understand that we are not just seeking another opinion or hearing some new account, but Lord, that this is your eternal and wonderful truth, a Lord, that will transform our lives by the power of your spirit. So, Lord, encourage our hearts by your word. Challenge us, rebuke us if we need it. But, Lord, may we truly see Christ in it and the wonder of his love and grace. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, It's been a couple of months since we've been walking through John's Gospel. And I have to admit that it is is one of my my favourite books in the Bible because it's, it's so... It's such like a great story. It's a wonderful thing. Before I was a Christian, I had an understanding of who Jesus was and and what he had done and what he came to do and all of these different things. And most of my opinions came from my head or from the internet or from things that other people have said. And yet in reading John's Gospel, I was truly transformed in my thinking about who Jesus is because he's very different than, than most people understand. And indeed, for those of us who read the Bible for the first time and read of Jesus, well, he was a lot more radical than we give him credit for. And and indeed, he was a lot more powerful than any of the people in those days had ever known before. The the thing that they said over and over again is, who is this man? Where does he get his authority from? Because he doesn't quote teachers. He doesn't quote scholars. He doesn't list back to the academics that he's building his opinions upon. He is speaking as one who has authority. Indeed, is speaking the word of God. And John in his gospel, that's what's so amazing. John starts off by saying that Jesus is not just another teacher. He's not just another philosopher. He's not just another wandering rabbi around Jerusalem Judea and Israel, he is God. He is the Logos, the Word of God. He was in the beginning 
with God and is God. And John all the way through has been pointing to that. It's nearly as if at the end of every passage he's saying, this is Jesus and he is God. This is Jesus, he is turning water into wine. He is God. This is Jesus who is performing miracles. He is God. This is Jesus who everyone is pointing to as the one who would come, the Messiah, the wonderful God himself. And we've walked through a lot of those different accounts. We have seen him meeting with uh, Nicodemus, this this wonderful and, and I suppose, uh, highly appointed uh, leader in Israel. This teacher who was talked to as if he was a small child. We we see of Jesus with an outcast woman at a well in Samaria. and, And he is speaking with her and reasoning with her. And ultimately revealing himself to be the Christ, the son of the living God. Last week you you heard of of, uh, Jesus healing an official son. And so Jesus is meeting with people, albeit in crowds, but also in a really personal and relational way. He's he's meeting with people, not just like Nicodemus or the official who are high and important, but also the Samaritan woman who's an outcast and of ill repute. And here in chapter 5, we break into another account where Jesus draws near to an individual. But again, unlike the official or Nicodemus, this man, because of his ailment, because of his disability or paralysis or whatever it is, his sickness, would have likely been another outcast within society. Many people believed that people who had such ailments, well, it was a case of their sin, that they had sinned, they'd done something, their family had done something, that they were, in one sense, cursed, and so had these disabilities, these health problems, because of a curse that God had put upon them. And so they were shunned out of the sight of society. They were treated like animals and not complete people. And they weren't recognized as having any value in the world. And yet here we come to this account where Jesus draws close to this man, not just doing a miracle, but revealing again who he is and why it matters. And so there are three things that I want us to kind of focus on uh, today. And, And again, it's a challenging passage to us. But I want us to begin by looking at the wholeness that Jesus offers. The wholeness that Jesus offers. If you look again in verse 1 to 7. It says, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. If you're of the eagle-eyed persuasion, you'll notice that there's a missing verse. And if you look there, you'll, you'll count verse 1, 2, 3, 5 maybe in your Bible. And you're thinking, ha ha, here we go, there's a missing verse 4. I've maybe got one of these copies of the Bible and I can sell it for millions. They've made a mistake in my Bible. Well, not necessarily. A lot of scholars believe that in the, the writing of the Bible, because of the culture and how it changed, uh, people didn't really know what happened at this pool. And so some well-meaning scholar, whenever they were copying the Bible, wrote a note in the margin to say, ah, do you know, this is a pool that people believe in a tradition that an 
angel of God came down, stirred up the water, and when the water was stirred up, apparently that you could be healed. So some well-meaning person put it in the margin, and all of a sudden it kept creeping from the margin closer and closer and closer, till people believed that it was actually part of the Bible itself, and, and it wasn't. And so very kindly and helpfully, and indeed uh, to preserve the word of God, uh, that they took the verse out. And, and so maybe in your Bible it's, it's down at the bottom. And so they had this tradition around this pool that apparently an angel sent by God in order to show compassion on people uh, stirred the water at this pool in Bethesda in order to provide healing. And, and at a feast of the Jews, we learn, and we're not necessarily sure which feast it is, but Jesus went up as a, an observant Jew to Jerusalem to, to present his offerings as an observant Jew. And, and, and he ends up at this pool. Now, a lot of people would say this pool was a, well, it was a very interesting place. If you were told, or if I was told, that if we had a, an ailment or a disability or a paralysis or we were blind or lame, as many of the people here were, well, we could go to this pool and wait. And maybe at a special time of the year or maybe in a special season or in a special way, this angel would come and stir it up and all of your prayers would be answered and all of your ailments and physical problems would go away if you just got into the water in time. And so many, many, many people, as you can imagine, uh, with all sorts of different ailments and difficulties were brought to this pool because of this tradition, this story. They were there to be healed. They were there to get well. And we're introduced to one of them. Uh, As we read there in verse 5, the one man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Whenever it uses the word sick man, the sick man in verse 7, it means one who couldn't move. So the likelihood is he was so physically disabled or, or he was paralyzed that he was completely unable to do anything for himself. That he was completely unable to perform any action. And he was reliant on other people. And that's why whenever we get to to verse 6 and we read of the question, Jesus asks him, it seems a really strange question. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? I suppose for us we're thinking, well, well, of course he does. He's at this pool. That's, that's why people go to the pool. You know, he's, he's obviously very unwell. He's either very disabled or paralyzed. Of course he wants to be well. Of course he wants to be healed. What a really strange question that Jesus would ask. And yet, as we've seen so many times through the Gospels, and in particular in John and, and talking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus has a, a, a very... Well, a very special trait of asking questions that get past all the rubbish and get past all the, you know, the small talk and all the excuses and things. It gets right to the very heart of the matter. Like many of the people in John's Gospel, this man is completely unaware of who Jesus is. He just thinks he's a, a fellow that's come over and, and asked him a question. He, he doesn't even understand maybe some of the ministry of Jesus or, or the healings that Jesus has done. He doesn't understand any of these things. He, he seems to be completely unaware of who is asking this question. And, and so he goes off into this ramble. He says, well, of course I want to be healed. That's why I'm here at this pool. And, you know, I I don't, well, it's not really healing I need. I need somebody to help me because I can't move. And whenever the water might be stirred up and the angel comes down and dips his finger in the water, well, I need somebody to to put me in the water. But then, you know, it's unfortunate because every time that I'm there and if I have somebody, I'm not really in time. And when the water's stirred up, somebody gets down in front of me and and this is a really terrible situation that I'm in. And it's it's really heartbreaking. Uh, You know, this is what I really need. I need healing, but I need people. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. 
And it's wonderful that this simple question that Jesus asks him results in this, I suppose, list of things that this man needs. He needs healing, yes, but he needs someone to help him. He needs someone to lift him. He needs someone to bring him down. He needs timing. He needs all of these different things. And yet, whereas Jesus asked this question, do you want to be healed? The word there, as it's used, healed, it it, it means, means more towards the idea of being complete. Jesus says, do you want to be complete? Better in a sense, do you want to be whole? Do you want wholeness? And, and even for us, if someone was to you know, ask you that on the street, if you were to walk down the street in Westport and someone was to go, how are you doing today? Would you like to be whole? You know, have me thinking, <laughs> you know, why, what's wrong with me? <laughs> do you know, what's, what's going on? Am I missing a bit? You know, did I come out without my leg today or something? You know, do you want to be whole? It's a question that Jesus asks that indeed is true on so many levels. It's not just a matter of someone lifting him. It's not just a matter of someone helping him. It's not just a matter of his timing and ability to get into the water. But Jesus speaks into his very life and his soul and his heart and says, do you want to be complete? Do you want to be whole? And it's, I suppose, the most... Well, it's, it's one of the most sad things about this. Is that as Jesus approaches this man and asks him, does he want to be whole? All the man wants is to be healed. And I hope we see the level of that. Jesus is saying to this man, would you like to be whole? Would you like to be complete? And for us on this side of it, we know who Jesus is. We know what he offers. We know that he can present and he can do by his miraculous power. But this man's limitations are are so short. He's so short-sighted. Jesus offers him wholeness and completion. And yet all of this man wants is someone to dip him into the water so that he can be healthy. And it uncovers for us a really huge issue in relation to God. And especially for us, as we understand, as John presents to us, who Jesus is. Because this man, in a sense, was a very weak and frail rebel against God. He was a sinner like we all are and were. And yet this man was a physically unwell rebel against God. And from the account, as we'll see it develop, all he wanted to be was a healthy rebel against God. (laughs) All he wanted was to be able to walk. All he wanted was to have good health. All he wanted was someone to come and dip him in the water so that he would be physically well again. And, and it's the sad thing about this account, as, as you read a lot around it, is that there's nothing in this passage that ever leads us to understand that this man professed faith, that was gracious and thankful towards Christ, There's nothing that ever led us to believe that this man ever followed Jesus. In a few weeks' time, we'll get to John 9, where there was a man born blind and Jesus heals him. And this man was jumping for joy in the temple. He was taking on the religious leaders. He was defending Jesus. He was praising God. And he followed after Christ. And yet in this account, in chapter 5, there's nothing here that would lead us to believe that this man was ever thankful or gracious towards what Christ had done. And it uncovers something, and we'll look at it a bit later on. Really profound and also quite frightening. See, most of us just want God to do things for us. But we don't really want him. (laughs) 
It's something that we'll see in the Gospels with the rich young ruler. And Jesus says, well, you know, if you do want to follow me, give away all of your stuff. And in a sense, what Jesus was saying to him was, let me be enough. If you truly love me, if you truly want to follow me, then I will be enough. And all of this other stuff that you have, ultimately it will be meaningless. It will pale in the light of my glory. And I will satisfy you. And yet it seems for this man, and indeed for many of us, we don't want Jesus to transform our lives. We just want him to make it a bit easier. We just want pains to go away. Or we just want blessing. And as much as we look at people who follow and devote their lives to the health, wealth and prosperity gospel, if we scratch at the surface of our lives and if we look at our prayers and we look at our petitions before God, do we just want God to do things for us? Or are we truly interested in a relationship with him? This man, as I said, was offered wholeness and completion. And yet all he wanted was to be healed. And yet it's interesting because that's exactly what he gets. But we don't just find out, the, the, I suppose, the wholeness that Jesus offers. But secondly, the healing that we truly need. From verse 8 to 14, uh, well, Jesus performs this miracle. He, he demonstrates his power. And if we break it at verse 8, it says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's easy and it's surreal whenever there's, I suppose, accounts of healings. Because it seems so like, Jesus healed somebody. Let's keep going. Whereas, I think for me, sometimes when Jesus healed somebody, you think... Hold on a wee second, that's amazing. This man was an invalid for 38 years. He had likely never walked or indeed had never been completely well. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, speaks a word of power into his life and bang. The the words at the start, and it's a a joke in our house, in that uh, Mark's gospel, Mark uses it over and over again. Uh, In verse 9 it says, and at once the man was healed. In Mark's gospel, there's this word, and if you go home and check it out, it's immediately in Mark's gospel it says, and Jesus said this and immediately it happened. And, and the, the instance here is that Jesus didn't just say, look, go home and take a few tablets or go home and rub these leaves on your leg or go home and you'll get well. It says that this man was lying for 38 years, completely unable to move. And all of a sudden Jesus says, get up and he gets up. It happened right there and then. And sometimes, as I said, it's a verse and we skip over it. To really fail to understand who it is, is speaking here. And as funny as people maybe come back to you in conversation as they do to me now and again and say, oh, do you know, how, how could this be real? That Jesus just says something and, you know, he gets up and walks. And I suppose the answer has to be, you know, since Jesus is God, the one who created the entire universe with the word, surely getting somebody to stand up after 38 years is a pretty easy thing to do. 
And yet it's wonderful that we, we can see this beauty and this, this real purposeful miracle for Jesus to show his power. He walks into a scene, heaving with sick people, longing for healing, and yet he, he heals this one man out of a crowd that, as we will see, it doesn't even seem grateful for it. And unlike other accounts, and it's the thing that, that kind of troubled me as I was reading this, that as we see people normally believe in Jesus or that Jesus does something wonderful for them, they, they are transformed. They go and they tell everybody. They go and they proclaim it from the rooftops. Even last week with the, the official son that it says that this man believed in Jesus. He, he trusted in Jesus. He saw who Jesus was and why he put her faith in him because he had done this. But yet, as Jesus speaks wholeness immediately into this man's life, it nearly seems as if the whole thing's been downplayed. Jesus is in the middle of a crowd and he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. And you're thinking, well, what's, what's the point of that then? John tells us about these signs, that these miracles are not just things to show that Jesus can do some magic tricks, but they're to the point to who he is. And John is unfolding the reality of who Jesus is verse by verse as we walk through with this. And yet there is a point in this account that I suppose for people at that time, and indeed we'll see it in the story, has caused absolute bedlam. Now for us we maybe think, well it's not really that important and we've maybe read it and skipped over it. But if you look there, at the end of verse 9. We'll read verse 9. It says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And we think, praise God. And then it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. <laughs> now for anybody of that day, their jaw would have hit the floor. And they thought, well, hold on a second. We didn't know it was the Sabbath. We didn't know, you know what was going on. We didn't realize that he was doing it on this special day. We didn't realize that Jesus was performing it and he was doing his miracle on this day. Because for people of that day, they knew the Sabbath was something significant. A few months ago, the kids were doing it in children's church about the, the days of creation. And that seventh day where God rested. And it's, it's kind of an unfortunate word, God resting, because it leads people to believe that maybe God was tired. That, you know, he had done all of this wonderful things and he needed to lie down. And yet they had a little verse uh, that the kids have gone over and over and over again. The seventh day is not simply because God rested, but that he enjoyed everything that he had made. God created the Sabbath. Even though we, I suppose, look at God and he doesn't need rest, he realizes that we do. That we can enter into rest. That we can enjoy all the things that God has made. That it was a day that we would fix and focus our praise and our adoration and our worship on to him. And yet in this context the Sabbath was something that was ridiculously complicated. That was surrounded by so many rules and so many laws. That it had choked the life out of the intention that God had for it. And sadly there are many still today that try to do that. The Jews, and as we've seen there, had all sorts of different rules that you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. They talked about bearing weight. There's an Orthodox synagogue in Belfast. And when I was at Bible college, we went to meet it. And, and a guy said that you would be checked at the door. And I'm like, what do you mean you'd be checked? If frisked for that? I know it's Belfast and there could be people with weapons and stuff. But, you know, I didn't know why they would be frisked at the door. And he said, because if you had a pin in your jacket or you had a drawing pin at the back of your coat or something that was hanging off you, you would be carrying a weight on the Sabbath and you would be breaking the law of God. 
And you're thinking, that's pretty significant. And I really see that in scripture, that having a pin on your lapel would be carrying a weight that would keep you from fellowship with God and with others. You can see it, and again, it, it's, it's terrifying to think how this works. The Jews address this man and say, you know, it's the Sabbath, you're carrying your mat. You know, you're, you're, you're carrying something on the Sabbath, you shouldn't be really doing this. But the man answers, well, the man who healed me told me to pick up my mat. And since, you know, I haven't been walking for 38 years, and, and you know, since I'm quite excited that I can now use my legs and kind of get places. I never probably realized that I was carrying a mat in any way. When the man says, pick up your mat, he wasn't the kind of person that you would maybe not obey because he had caused me to walk again by the power of his word. And yet verse 11 and 12 are so sad and so indicative of these people. It says, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man who said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Notice what they didn't say. Say, who's this man who healed you? (laughs) There's a fella running about that can make you walk after 38 years. There is someone who can speak words and can bring life and can bring strength and can transform life. We need to go and see this person. No, their focus was, who is the man who caused you To break the rules. (laughs) Who is the man who told you to pick up your mat? Who is the man who made you break this insignificant rule in a sense. In order to completely transform and heal your life. Their focus was in completely the wrong direction. They were so concerned with keeping these little rules and traditions. That they had brought up and made up. That they had missed God and his power. And of course you see that all the way through the gospels. But again it shows us something really interesting. The man says, oh, it was Jesus. He's amazing. I'm going to worship him and follow him for the rest of my life. In fact, he's not just a teacher. He's God himself. That's what the man said, didn't he? No. (laughs) He says, oh, I I don't know who he is. (laughs) Now you think if someone come up and spoke words into your life and you stood up after 38 years, you'd maybe, you'd maybe try and find out who he was. You'd maybe try and find out a bit about him as I said even the word that the man used the man healed me the man made me well he's not talking about completion anymore he's talking about his legs and his walking he didn't hang around to talk to Jesus there's no record of him in this passage thanking Jesus or worshipping Jesus or following Jesus or even desiring to know anything about Jesus he's well and here he is walking and he doesn't even know who Jesus is Verse 14, Jesus catches up with the man, uh, not accidentally. (laughs) It says the man is in the temple. A lot of people think that he went to the temple to offer sacrifice to God because he was well. And yet, although he was giving thanks to God, he didn't join the dots to realize who Jesus was and what he had done in his life. And yet, Jesus uncovers the reality of this man's heart. Verse 14 Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus' point here is quite terrifying. He's basically saying that for the last 30 years, and his 38 years, and his disability, and the struggle that he was in, and the problems that he had, 
that because he had not, in a sense, been made complete, that there is something worse for him living a life steeped in sin. And it's a thing that a lot of people through history have kind of went back and forth on and all around the place in that they struggle to understand Jesus showing mercy and grace on someone who not only didn't deserve it, but was in no way thankful, in no way grateful, and in no way followed and worshipped him. This grace that Jesus had shown him, in a sense, didn't leave him and lead him to repentance. But ultimately, the man getting what he wanted just simply continued on his own way. And maybe that changes our understanding of this guy because you're thinking, well, if that had happened to me, how thankful would I have been? It's wonderful. I, I, I really detest flying. I, re- I, don't, I don't do flying planes. When they shut that door, I start getting jittery, which is always helpful. Now Julie has four kids when we have to go anywhere. Uh, but... Whenever I, I, before I was a Christian, I, I used to pray, God, if you're there, as an atheist at that stage, you know, it was a big claim. If you're really there and the plane lands and I'm safe, I will devote my entire life to you. And then the plane landed, the door opened and I went, Phew, I'm free. <laughs> and then the next time I got on a plane, I went, you know, God, I don't believe in you. But if you're really there and we land this plane and I'm safe, then I'll believe in you. And the plane landed, the door opened and I was free and nothing ever changed. So many of us walk through life not realizing that every breath we have, everything that we have, is due to his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness. And how many of us are truly thankful? But not just the wholeness that Jesus brings. Or indeed, as we've seen there from verse 8 to 14, the healing that we need, that that, that physical healing, that, that thing that we get is not true completion that Jesus offers. But verse 15 to 18 shows us that the challenge that Jesus gives, not just to this man, but indeed to all of us. It says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Somehow bumping into Jesus and Jesus challenged him. Had really pointed out to him that he needed to tell people it was Jesus. And we get the sense that it wasn't really in a nice way. He went and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Occasionally you'll have people either on the street or calling around your door and they will say to you, ah, Jesus never said that he was God. He never claimed to be God. He never showed himself to be God. This is something that was invented much later. And yet it seems here, uh, you know, in these verses, that that the Jewish leaders of that time realized what Jesus was saying when he made all of these statements. That Jesus very much claimed to be God. And he didn't just claim it, he showed it and proved it over and over and over again. In fact, in the Gospels, that's the kind of thing. The whole Bible is focused around the fact that Jesus is God. And so if people do say you, you can bring all of these verses out and say, well, it's not that Jesus didn't make this claim, but everybody else realized what he was saying. He was making himself equal to God, and they what? They wanted to kill him because of it. And even though there's no direct link, and we can't definitely say it, 
After being challenged by Jesus, this man goes to the Jews that had challenged him before and said, well, actually, I know who it is now. It's this man, Jesus. Again, we never get the sense that he followed Jesus or he worshipped Jesus or he led his life and gave it to Jesus. But in this, the tone changes. John has obviously shown to us that there were niggles about Jesus through his gospel, but now it's very overt. They begin to persecute Jesus. They persecute him because he's working on the Sabbath. He's breaking the rules and he's making other people break the rules. They don't understand that he's God. In fact, he invented the Sabbath. But more than that, verse 18, it says that they were trying to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They were saying he was blaspheming. And this, in the Old Testament, is a very, very, very serious allegation. If you were blaspheming, making yourself equal to be God, then you were put to death, because literally no man could be God. That, that's, you're making yourself out to be God, and that is not to be stood for. And yet in no way did they go to Jesus, no way did they ask him, no way did they investigate, no way did they try and figure out how this man healed somebody after 38 years. All they were concerned with was him breaking the Sabbath rules. But this tension, this challenge, is the great one that Jesus gives, not only to these people, but us. We have to ask the question, how can Jesus heal people? Either he's really good at medicine, (laughs) or he's God. How can Jesus turn water into wine? Well, either it's a trick and everybody was fooled at this wedding, or he is God. (laughs) You know, how did Jesus speak with authority that completely confounded all of these teachers and did these things and proved these things over and over again? Well, either he's a really good con artist, or he is God. And then you ultimately get to the likes of the resurrection and say, well, Jesus was dead and then he was alive. How do you do things like that? Well, it's because he is God. And the challenge that Jesus gives is that he doesn't allow us to just pigeonhole him into this idea of being a healer or being someone who makes himself out to be equal with God. But the reality is that he is God. And if Jesus is God, as he claims he is, he is the sovereign God of the universe, he is worthy of honour, praise and worship, and he is to be the sole focus and fixed point of all of our lives and our obedience. And that changes everything. As I said, John is building over and over and over again, not just what Jesus can do, but who Jesus is. And so to think about this for our lives, it leaves us with two questions. Have this account of this man and what Jesus has done for him and even the challenge that Jesus gave him. We have these religious leaders persecuting and trying to kill Jesus because of who he says he is. But ultimately it leaves us with two questions. The first in relation to the man and his attitude is a very poignant one for us. Do we really want Jesus? Do we really desire him? As we said at the start, Jesus offered this man so much more than physical healing. He offered him himself. He offered him completion. And yet this man was satisfied with so little I kind of wonder sometimes, are my prayers, do I bring them down to my level because I don't think God is able? 
do I not ask for big things because I don't really trust that God can bring them? Do I pray for things in my life because I want my life to be easier? Do I present that I trust and I love and I worship and I praise and I devote my entire life in obedience unto Christ? But I just really want things for myself. I don't really want Jesus because ultimately Jesus brings a lot of other things. Whenever I became a Christian, it was one of the most difficult things that that I'd ever went through in my whole entire life. Because I realized that if Jesus was God, then it had some serious implications for my life. You know, there's a a funny quote that says that Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. All to Jesus I surrender. (laughs) Do we mean that? All to him I freely give. Have you tried it? Do we really want Jesus or do we just want the things that he brings? See, there's so many times in our lives that we simply treat him like a genie in a bottle that when things go wrong, we bring him out in order to give us what we want. And yet since he is God, he is due our obedience. He is due our life. He is due our things. And of course we can make a good show of our life and we can say the right things and show the right things and we can do all of these things and yet, is it our heart's desire to be satisfied completely in him? That's a question that we must ask ourselves. But secondly, I suppose the foundation of that is, do we really know who he is? So far in John's Gospel... We can see that his purpose is that we may know who Jesus is so that we may believe in him. He is God. He is very God. He has been always there. He's the creator of heaven and the earth. He's the one that sustains everything. He is the reason and the purpose for life. He is the light of the world. He is the joy of the world. He is the one that brings new life. And that should change how we think about Jesus. And it should change how we sing about Jesus. And it should change how we pray. It should change how we live. It should change how we give. It should change how we behave with other people. We should be transformed because of who it is we love and we worship. See, the Jewish leaders understood what he was saying. And they tried to kill him for it. My prayer is that we would truly understand who Jesus is and that it would transform us. Not like this man in a sense who got what he wanted and went on his way. But that we would truly understand who Jesus is and it would transform everything about us. Our words, our actions, our thoughts, our deeds. How we care for one another. How we share him with other people. How we trust him. How we struggle. How we suffer. All of these things in life. They're all brought under that understanding of who it is that we love and we worship. And so my prayer today, as we maybe think in the rest of this day and this week, that do we really want Jesus? Are we completely satisfied in him? But if not, maybe it's because of the second question. Maybe we don't really know who he is. And we need to get into his word And read about who he is and what he has done. And the wonderful one who loved us and gave his life for us. So as we think about those questions and we pray now. 
I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears and our lives that we would truly understand who Jesus is and we'd be radically transformed by his grace. Let's pray together.